Shalom everyone, this is Kalev Bendor, recording from Jerusalem. And today we start what's likely the best well-known book for the Treasa, Yonah, the book of Jonah. It's the story many of us have learned as children, and it's the book that we hear, well, those of us who aren't late after the break anyway, as the Haftorah for Mincha on Yom Kippur. It's only four chapters long, and in contrast to the other books in the Treasa, it isn't full of words of prophecy. In fact, Yonah only says one sentence of prophecy in the entire book. There's so much to potentially say here. But as today we're reading chapter one, I'll try and limit myself to that. Firstly, who is Yonah ben Amitai? The only other place Yonah is mentioned in Tanakh is in Malachim Bet chapter 14. There we learn about the reign of Yeravam II, Yeravam ben Yoash. In the 15th year of Amatzia, the son of Yoash, king of Judah, Yeruvam, the son of Yoash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria and reigned 40 and 1 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Yeruvam, the son of Nevat, wherewith he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of the Arava, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by the hand of his servant, Yonah, the son of Amitai, the prophet who was from Gat-Hefer. Now we've talked about Yeruvam II before. Both Amos and Hoshea prophesy during his long reign. He's compared to the most evil of kings, yet he significantly expands the borders of the country. Hamat is 50 miles north of Damascus. Yonah is seemingly mentioned as a side point, but if we want to better understand what makes Yonah tick, we should perhaps consider what it must have been like for a prophet of the Lord, who one assumes preached the importance of keeping God's ways, to be living at a time when there was a particularly evil king who was particularly successful. Our chapter, chapter 1, begins when God tells Yonah Rise up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim against it, because their wickedness is come before me. But Yonah does not want to go. He initially, Vayakom, arises, but rather than go to Nineveh, it's to flee. And then we have a series of Yiridot, of going downs. He vayered to Jaffa. He goes down to Jaffa to find a ship. Vayeredba. He goes down onto it in order to travel to Tarshish. As a storm threatens to tear the ship in two and everyone is shouting and praying to their gods, Yonah had gone down into the innermost parts of the ship and he lay and in a word, that has the same root, Vayeradam, he was fast asleep. There's a storm, and Yonah is fast asleep. The sailors are afraid. They draw lots in order to find out why the storm is happening. They discover that it's due to Yonah, who tells them to throw him into the sea. The men initially don't want to, but ultimately they realize it's the only way to stop the storm. And after they throw him in, and the storm subsides, the sailors greatly fear the Lord and make sacrifices.
It's the beginning of a pattern where the non-Jews in the story in the story of Yonah come out very positively. But what we don't know is why Yonah flees. What's driving him in his apparent death wish when he offers to be thrown into the sea? What has distressed him so much that as the storm rages, he's managed to fall asleep? Even a child knows you can't run away from God. There's so many different ways to view Yonah, from selfish and self-centered on the one hand, to showing courage and selfless identification with the Jewish people on the other. And these will probably be fleshed out more in the next few days. And in chapter 4, Yonah explicitly tells God as to why he fled. But for now, I'd like to share some prisons for how we can understand Yonah and his actions. The first is what I mentioned above. This is a prophet of God who lives at a time where the leadership does evil, but seemingly gets rewarded. He may have been deeply frustrated and angry at the ways of God. How can there be no connection between how one acts and the stability and security of the kingdom? More personally, he may have felt it undermined his own prophetic message and maybe even his reputation as an authentic prophet. We don't have any record of any works of Yonah, but if he was encouraging the people and ruling class to return to God's ways, and their ignoring him seemingly had no negative consequences, lehefech, the opposite, then that's not a great place for a prophet to be in. The second prism is a passage from the Mechilta that's been mentioned here before that describes different models of prophets. There are three types of prophets. Those who argue for the honor of both the Father, God, and the Son, the Jewish people. Those who argue for the honour of the Father, but not the Son. Those who argue for the honour of the Son, but not the Father. An example of Model 1 is Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah. He defends the people against God, and he defends God against the people. An example of number 2 is Eliyahu. His primary defence is that of God. He constantly criticises the Jewish people for not keeping God's covenant. And the example brought for model number three is Yonah. Yonah tava kavod ben velo kavod av. He's willing to critique or to deny God in order to protect or save, or perhaps not embarrass, the Jewish people. Why is Yonah so deeply disturbed by the mission, even to the point where he would rather be thrown into the sea? Because Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, and Assyria will one day destroy the kingdom of Israel and exile its inhabitants. Yonah, who loves his people more than anything, does not want to play any role in this. In fact, he'd rather die. And the third prism is an idea from Aviva Zornberg, who wonders what the opposite of fleeing is. In other words, if Yonah flees, and that's a mistake, what should he have been doing? She explains that the opposite of fleeing is standing in the presence of God. And standing before God means standing in the place between death and life and acknowledging that one has no security 
acknowledging that anything can happen at any time. To flee, to refuse to stand before God, then, is to invade, is to evade an essential uncertainty. And if we look at Yonah, he does seem to want to evade uncertainty. He always already knows. The sailors don't know what will happen during the storm. The king of Nineveh does not know what will happen if they try and repent. And God later says the city does not know the difference between their right hand and their left. But Yonah knows. He knows the storm is because of him. Later he knows how God will act. Zornberg adds that Jonah finds that position of standing in that in-between place unbearable. He's allergic to it. That uncertainty of death life. And from our chapter at least, he really would rather die. He expresses a death wish more than once. And of course, when Nineveh is saved, Yonah is very disturbed, because this is also a way of God saying, you don't know for sure what I want. Zornberg concludes that for Yonah to evade that place is to deny vulnerability, to prefer death, the foregone conclusion, to the anguish of the human place between. And in this sense, perhaps many of us are like Yonah. We prefer knowing to the troubling insecurity much of life involves. But perhaps it's this in-between, that place of deep uncertainty, that no matter how uncomfortable and frightening, all of us need to try and stand in, rather than fleeing to the comfort of certainty. And in that sense, this reading is particularly relevant to Yom Kippur, because only from this place can we cry out to God, and only from this place can we be open to a process of improving our lives and doing tshuva. Wishing everyone a wonderful day.